0: Hello Lisa and Andrew, or well, Andrew and Lisa depending on sofa position. It's me, Ben Baker here from, well, my house obviously. Also the podcast don't let's chat. As I've got a new quiz book on Amazon, Ben Baker's fun book for the apocalypse, I figured I'd set you a little task of your own with a sitcom quiz for your 50th show. Now, we all know the Americans can sneeze out a half century of comedy programs without even getting a stitch, but here in England, the caper is much more civilized, with 12 considered the perfect number by many a comedy scholar and person who can't count up to 13. So, here are 10 sitcoms from Blighty, most of which have appeared on your previous 49 editions, but did they reach 50 episodes? 1. Terry and June 2. Sorry. 3. Bless this house. 4. The thick of it. 5. After Henry. 6. The British Empire. 7. Mind your language. 8. Heidi High. 9. My hero. And 10. Hardwick House. 5 of those did reach 50 episodes. 5 of them did not. Over to you.
1: Hello I'm Andrew.
2: Hello, I'm Lisa.
1: Welcome to episode fifty a of
2: round the archives
1: well fifty a fifty
2: a I yes. can hear
1: Rose playing with a ball <laughs> she's so she brutal. she's excited too she's
2: excited yes. yes
1: because it is exciting it is reaching fifty episodes yes, but it's gonna be a biggie yes, and the in fact the biggest one ever, so mm-hmm. it's being split into fifty a mm-hmm. and fifty b <laughs> So thanks to Ben Baker yes. for his lovely quiz. Yes. The answers to which will be along later. Mhm. But now here is Andy Priestner looking at
2: the Cleopatra's.
3: Summer, 1982. It's already been a good year for television. Peter Davison has revived the fortunes of Doctor Who in its new weekday slot, and his second series has entered production. The Eurovision Song Contest has recently taken place in Yorkshire of all places, following Bucks Fizz's victory the previous year. A new US show arrives with much fanfare, called Fame. It's about the students of a performing arts school based on a hit movie of the same name. Another import is a new soap to rival Dallas, Dynasty, said to have been devised by Aaron Spelling after it became hooked on the BBC's Roman epic I, Claudius. Ah yes, I, Claudius. That 12-part masterpiece that the BBC had arguably not bettered in the six years since it was broadcast. And yet the BBC were still the best at drama production in the world, weren't they? Recent success had included wartime prison drama Tenko, a second series of which was due to air in the autumn, and Jersey-based detective drama Bergerac, which had successfully replaced Shoestring and was set to continue, while Alan Bleasdale's hard-hitting Boys from the Blackstuff was waiting in the wings. But what other dramatic delights were being planned to grip the nation? One series that was about to enter production certainly seemed to be taking a leaf out of the iClaudius book entirely studio-bound, deliberately theatrical in quality, telling an epic historical tale of love and murderous intrigue. The outrageous story of the Ptolemaic dynasty of the Cleopatras. But would it be winning all the BAFTAs in 1983? The Cleopatras had been written by Philip Mackey, Pearl Mackey's grandfather no less, who already had quite a reputation for writing excellent TV drama including the 1968 series The Seasons, which covered exactly the same period as I, Claudius, The Naked Civil Servant with John Hurt, and almost all of Raffles with Anthony Valentine. Set to produce was Guy Slater, who was then enjoying much acclaim for helming Wendy Craig's Nanny, and was only a few years off making a huge success of Miss Marple with Joan Hickson. The director, John Frankow, also had a good body of work behind him, including Another Bouquet of Barbed Wire, Children of the New Forest, and Episodes of the Agatha Christie Hour. With this lineup, it was hard to see how the Cleopatra's could fail. The BBC certainly didn't want to have another repeat of the Borgias, their historical drama disaster of the previous year. The problem there was largely agreed to be casting, especially that of Adolfo Celli as Rodrigo Borgia.
4: Without a man as such a son,
5: Although the son was his father, uncle. Yes, the mother said. Maybe it was difficult to understand Adolf, I, I don't know, but they made great play of that, you know, that he said nipples instead of naples and all this kind of stuff. They go to naples together, and their hostile natures could... Uh,
3: but what talent could be attracted to the Cleopatras? Naturally, there were numerous gutsy parts for all the many Cleopatras whose lives would be detailed therein, as well as their many consorts and children. However, unlike Claudius, it was mainly decided to go for actors known for television than for theatre. Winning the role of that one Cleopatra we all know the best, yes, the one with the asp, was Michelle Newell. Newell was best known for playing the ill-fated Mary Seaton in When the Boat Comes In, and for the role of disabled Patty Bates in Dennis Potter's controversial Brimstone and Treacle. The Cleopatras would actually give her two roles, playing Cleopatras three and seven making her the only actor to appear in all eight episodes.
4: Oh, uh, how are you this morning? I'm pregnant. Oh. Otherwise, very well. Are you certain that you're pregnant? Oh, I'm quite certain. What are we going to do about it? Well, you decide, darling, because you're so clever and uh, I'm only a woman. I'll do whatever you say. Will you? Of course. Do away with it. If you say so. You just have
1: to say the word.
3: Other key casting was Richard Griffiths as the loathsome potbelly who had recently enjoyed success in the BBC drama Bird of Prey. While the Emma Peel there never was, Elizabeth Shepherd was lined up to play the first Cleopatra, Potbelly's sister and wife.
2: Who's to be king and who's to be queen?
3: (laughs)
4: Not you yet, my dear.
2: Then who? Queen? I am. But you've been queen for 25 years now.
3: It's important for a monarchy to have continuity and stability. Towards the end of the run, Robert Hardy was to play Julius Caesar and Secret Army's Christopher Neame, Mark Antony.
5: Oh, I'm not like
4: you, Octavian. I enjoy life enormously! Wine, feasting women, oh, and battles and forced marches and living off stale crusts and foul water, too.
5: I enjoy all of it.
1: What do you enjoy? Power?
3: The seven or so Cleopatras in the series would mostly be played by relative newcomers, including Sue Holderness, no less than Boise's Marlene from Only Fools and Horses. And Pauline Moran, Poirot's secretary, Miss Lemon. Also early in their careers and in large roles were Ian McNeice, that's Churchill in New Doctor Who, as Alexander. David Horovitch, Slack in Miss Marple, as Chickpea. And Francesca Gonshaw, Maria in lower low, in the small role of Arsinoe.
2: My brother, the king, is still there, with the Romans. In his absence, I shall represent the royal house.
3: A star-studded cast of established supporting actors, completely impression that this could only be a success. Patrick Trouton, Graham Crowden, Morris Perry, John Bennett, Lois Baxter, Stephen Grief, John Ringham, and best of all, a world-weary John Savadant, who has great fun enduring the reign of one of the more silly Ptolemies.
4: The only thing we didn't discuss was how big the bribe should be. And exactly what you would get for it. Recognition of Egypt and me. And recognition by a Senate resolution? Yes. That's no good. They can pass another one, cancelling it whenever they please. No, they must pass a law, a special law, and follow it up with a treaty. What's the treaty for? A treaty saying that you are not only king, but the friend and ally of the Roman people.
3: Time-wise, the series would cover 145 BC to 36 BC although episodes one to five are told in flashback in 51 BC by Theodotus to the most famous Cleopatra before arriving in their present for the final three episodes. The great Isis, goddess of heaven and earth, was the wife of her brother,
1: Osiris, god of the earth, judge of the dead, and lord of the hereafter.
2: A sister marry her brother?
1: Yes, princess.
2: Like my father and mother?
1: Exactly like.
2: Ordinary people don't do
1: that. Your father and mother aren't ordinary people. They are gods.
2: Like Isis and Osiris.
1: Great
3: gods. It all moves at quite a pace, and there are many Cleopatras to keep track of, many thankfully with second names to help us distinguish them. Cleopatra Thea, Cleopatra Tryphena, Cleopatra Berenike, and so on. There are lots of Ptolemies too, but these tend to be given a greater variety of nicknames to help us, including Potbelly, and the delightfully named Chickpea and Fluta. The latter is so-called since he plays the flute, something he does with alarming regularity.
4: We present to you the new king of Egypt, son of King Ptolemy Soter, known as Chickpea, brother of the late, much-beloved Queen Cleopatra Berenice. King Ptolemy Neostionysus!
1: Known as Fluter!
3: Cleopatra's went into production in the latter half of 1982 and debuted, like I Claudius, on BBC Two. The first episode went out on Wednesday, 19th of January 1983, at 10.05pm, after MASH and before Newsnight. Earlier on ITV, Deirdre had gone out on a secret date with Mike Baldwin in Corrie. Why don't we pop back to my flat for the last drinker? Eh?
4: I've really got to get back.
3: While well, on BBC One, Tegan had fallen foul of the Mara again in Snake Dance Episode 2. Opposite the Cleopatras on the Beeb was the news and the second of the six-part Jerry Glaster thriller serial Scorpion with Terence Hardiman. The critical reception of the Cleopatras was apparently not great, although there seems to have been far more comment about female nudity than about anything else. Producer Guy Slater was keen to point out that The Cleopatras did not set out to be a realistic piece of costume drama, but instead a witty theatrical examination of power. This is fortunate, as it comes over as much less real than almost any other drama series I can think of. I guess it's kind of a cross between Jack and Ori Playhouse and Sketches from the Generation Game, with a large dollop of Rock Follies Campry thrown in for good measure.
4: At the moment he died, I became king. There is nothing for you to discuss with your so-called advisers. What's the next point? Sir Lucas, I'm your mother and the Queen of Syria.
5: Queen Mother, not Queen. I shall marry very soon, then Syria will have a queen.
3: This isn't to say that it's not enjoyable in its own weird way, but its choice of videotape? CSO, incredibly cardboard sets, melodramatic acting, and top-of-the-pop's transition effects is certainly unique. One effect has scenes scrunched up into a globe before it flies around the screen getting smaller before it disappears somewhere in the next scene. On several memorable occasions, these balls even end up disappearing in people's mouths or cleavage. In the final episode, Mark Antony is the target and I half expected poor Christopher Neim to burp his globe back up. There is a touch of the I Claudius to the Cleopatras too, perhaps given the intrigue and the focus on inheritance and power. But because it's all done in such a deliberately light entertainment comic strip style, you half expect Glynis Barber's Jane, or Captain Zepp's space detective, to wander into some of the scenes. In fact, Ray Ogden's Captain Zepp paintings are often more realistic than some of what we end up witnessing. Captain Zepp! Captain Zepp! Press releases and photographs from the time proudly announced the series to be witty, stylish, deliciously irreverent and a black comedy. It's certainly darkly comic and irreverent in the sense that it doesn't follow normal TV drama rules. But it's only witty in places and it's too cheaply designed and realised to feel stylish. Stylized maybe, but stylish no.
4: If our men fight like tigers in defence of their motherland, as they would... I find men fight best not for motherland, but for money. Men find what they expect to find. which is Reflections of themselves.
3: The same promo material also describes the series as lavishly produced. It really is anything but. There are such a limited range of sets that sometimes actors are forced to wander up and down and around the same set for no good reason, while some outdoor scenes offer little more than a different coloured black cloth. And everything is gold. Everything. Even most of the nipples on display. While this may have been true to the era, It also has the unfortunate effect of making it feel cheap and gaudy. The current president of the United States would love it. The series' flip-comic approach would be easier to stomach if it wasn't for the fact that there's so much horrible death in it. It's kind of fascinating to see how morally bankrupt its characters can be, but sometimes it just feels like going too far, however historically accurate it might be. The opening episode, for instance, ends with the first Cleopatra excited to learn the contents of a large birthday present, only to discover it's the dismembered remains of her son. While some of the Cleopatras themselves meet their ends in a variety of horrific ways, by being forced to drink poison, having their arms chopped off while clutching an altar for protection, having their teeth plucked out one by one, and strangulation after attempted rape.
1: I have sworn to kill you as a sacrifice to my wife's ghost. I've
3: also sworn it will not be a quick or easy
1: death. Execute love. Pull out her
3: teeth one by one
1: and then her eyes
4: not yet i wanted to see
3: (laughs) (laughs) nevertheless there are some wonderful performances in it my favorite cleopatra is no less than miss lemon herself Pauline Moran as Cleopatra Berenike. She is wonderfully steely and ambitious, but unlike most of her other namesakes, manages to be both sympathetic and charming. One can't help but feel watching this that Moran should have had many more demanding TV roles.
4: I've paid my last respects to him. You can have him taken away. Has your majesty decided whether there's to be any ceremony? A funeral, of course.
5: I meant a coronation.
4: No, Philocles, I've had enough coronations. We shall simply carry on as before, no
5: change. Unless Rome
1: wants a change.
4: Rome can stay out of our affairs.
1: Rome is master
5: of most of the world now. It doesn't stay out of anybody's affairs.
3: We are friendly with Rome. One great power with another.
5: Sue Holderness
3: is equally joyous, especially when she pretends to be upset at the impending death of her hideous father, Poppe hello you two come in come in
2: how are you father
3: how
4: are you father you're looking well i'm reliably informed that i'm dying oh it can't be oh don't cry cleopatra oh but i love you so much i don't want you to die don't cry i'm trying to make my death as amusing as my life has been oh don't like that, you're breaking my heart! Chickpea, you will please take her away if she goes on performing so atrociously.
3: It's because she is genuinely moved, father. David Horovich is wonderfully clueless as her husband Chickpea, who could not be less suited to being a pharaoh.
4: You're not only thieves, you're liars and swindlers as well. Anyone
3: who thinks that must be put to death.
4: We all agree about that. The big trouble is there's a lot of people to kill. Got the army? The army can't be in two places at once. Two. Sirenacre Siren Acre. send the troops to Thebes to crush the revolt
3: I think you're right I'm always right, I'm the king and divine While Amanda Boxer, incidentally the only actress to shave her head for the role makes an impact too as Cleopatra Tryphena possibly the most bloodthirsty Cleopatra of them all
2: Get him up on his knees uh, on. Ah, dog Kill him
5: Yes, we're going to as soon as you've gone We'll do it outside
2: He was going to kill you, wasn't he? Yes. Kill him here. And now. I want to see him die. To be sure of it. Now. Get
3: out! (laughs) Having read various reviews of the Cleopatras online, I see there's a lot of praise for Richard Griffiths as Potbelly. But for some reason for me, he just doesn't quite work. Sometimes his delivery is too flip. Other times I'm, I feel he's reaching for uh, a character and it becomes too much of a caricature. Um, yeah, it's just not for me. In fact, when I first watched the first episode of The Cleopatras about five years ago, it was partly his performance that put me off from watching any more.
5: <laughs>
4: Nature denied me beauty, so I denied myself virtue. I couldn't be loved, so I decided to be feared. Yes. I was ugly, so I had to settle for an obscene fascination. It's remarkably convenient. It means I can do whatever I want, and no one thinks the worst of me for it. Because they think so badly of you already. Exactly. At these coronation ceremonies, for instance, I shall have a massacre. Quite a small massacre, really. Fifty, a hundred people, something like that, on some pretext or other, for speaking disrespectfully of my mistress, Irene, that kind of thing then I have them killed. Is that something you want to do? It'll settle one or two old scores and terrify the people of Memphis. Isn't that enough?
3: There are other actors in trouble. Stephen Grief has a very bad day as Syrian King Demetrius, so much so that I initially struggled to believe it was him. But the worst offender is David Purcell as the thankfully short-lived and woefully played Alexander the Younger, who unfortunately offs Pauline Moran's Cleopatra Berenike. After Sextus, a weirdly tiny role for Patrick Troughton, calmly suggests that he rapes her. To hear Trouton suggest this is something very disturbing indeed. It's annoying being refused. Commit a pleasing rape. Which of our poets said that? Whoever it was, there's a lot of truth in it.
5: Do you really think so? I assure you, speaking from experience, there's a hell of a lot of truth in it. Take the advice of an old campaigner.
3: What the Cleopatras probably most lacks is someone sympathetic, an audience identification figure who can frame the drama, and also exhibit a decency and morality we can relate to, just as Derek Jacobi's Claudius did. I think it's meant to be the young Cleopatra played by Michelle Newell, but she's not in it enough or quite interesting enough to qualify. Besides, it's really confusing when she is playing both the Cleopatra of the present and the Cleopatra of the past for no particular good reason. Perhaps it was a cost saving. The first five episodes are incredibly fast-paced, so much so that it's very hard to keep track of who is who and what their motivation might be. Some people's reigns last less than an episode, and characters are unceremoniously killed off left, right and centre. Perhaps the strangest thing about the series, though, is the refusal to age anyone up to look older. Instead, people just lie down, looking just about the same age as when we first met them, and informally announce that they are going to die. It's another factor that takes you out of the drama and emphasises that this really is make-believe. But perhaps it's meant to. Perhaps that's the intention. The drama essentially begins all over again in episode 6 as we reach the present day of the Cleopatra to whom the previous five episodes have been recounted in flashback. Julius Caesar, first seen in episode 5 having to deal with her idiotic father, Fluter, is played by Robert Hardy. Now we finally see what the Cleopatra's could have been had it been cast with the calibre of talent as I Claudius. Hardy is phenomenal as the big JC, and may even be the best one I've ever seen on screen. Intelligent, vain, witty, and somehow far more good-looking and younger than Siegfried, even though this came three years after the first run of All Creatures ended. He is utterly believable, and is finally someone who can get behind. He may be completely duplicitous, but he's eminently likeable. Thankfully, Michelle Newell raises her game to match him too, as the object of his affections and together they project a genuinely loving relationship.
2: You didn't tell me about the Parthian expedition.
3: I would have just
4: decided.
2: Isn't it time you stopped fighting?
4: There's only one good way of dying, and that's suddenly and unexpectedly, and that's only possible in battle.
3: Oh, don't go. Also fun at this point of the series are Cleopatra's handmaidens, Iris and Charmian, played by Shirin Taylor and Carol Harrison respectively. Or as I know them, the ill-fated camper from Stones of Blood, and Tiffany's mum off of EastEnders. They are like a Robert Holmes cockney double act, commenting on events around them.
4: If you ask me, I'd say they were running neck and neck. In what? In the cruelty states. <laughs> Would you? Oh, I'd say Arsa Noe was much more wicked than our one. Do <laughs> you think so? <laughs> hmm. I agree. I wouldn't like to work for her. Though of course he got used to our one. We know her little ways. <laughs> Well, I'm surprised she doesn't. What do away with Arsinoe? She would if it was the other way round.
3: Being Egyptian handmaidens, they have their breasts out all the time, and I can't pretend it's not distracting. Producer Guy Slater commented at the time that the inclusion of bare-breasted ladies of the court was not intended to be in keeping with the spirit of outrageousness that they were seeking to present elsewhere in the series. He simply remarked that instead this was just the way these lower-ranked women dressed, and that there was nothing erotic about it at all. I have no doubt that in the pre-internet era of 1983 that many people felt differently about all the flesh on display. Costumes are appropriately enough by Pyramids of Mars' Barbara Kidd. These are mostly excellent with perhaps most effort put into the outfits of the final Cleopatra, especially her ensemble for her introduction to Roman high society, for which she is decked out as a vision of the Egyptian goddess Isis.
2: Did I keep you all waiting? I'm so sorry! But you all come! That's marvellous!
3: I don't know why, but I really do like the prog rock theme music by Nick Bycat. And there was enough confidence in it to release a 7-inch single. This tune and the rest of the Bycat's incidental music becomes more prevalent, rocky and insistent as the story continues. But I'm not sure if this is a deliberate choice or not. The final episode centres on the best-known Cleopatra tale of them all, her great love affair with Mark Antony, and their tragic downfall. Christopher Neame has great fun as the gold breastplated plated Antony, who cavorts drinks and, by his own admission, roister-doysters his way through life. Yes, he actually says roister-doyster.
0: Monogamy is a foolish Roman prejudice.
4: All the best people had more than one wife. Dionysus, Hercules! To say
2: nothing of Zeus
4: himself! To say nothing! <laughs>
3: After a brief crack at monogamy with Roman matron Octavia, he decides it's foolish and goes back to Cleopatra's side, because he is utterly captivated by her. In contrast to the earlier episodes, these three instalments with the most famous Cleopatra do feel a little drawn out, and there's far too much foreshadowing of tragedy for my taste. There is even a line about whether there will be enough asps to go around. It is no surprise here that there is no staging of the Battle of Actium at which Mark Antony was defeated by Octavian, who is nobly played here by Rupert Fraser but it would have been nice if they'd bothered to just mention it. Instead, we're just told all is lost, suddenly out of the blue, for our hopeless lovers. The last ten minutes of the final episode are terribly rushed and more in the style of the earlier part of the series as Antony takes the sword in a blink-and-you-miss-it clip before Cleopatra herself dies off-screen without so much as a final speech.
0: Charmian, is this
4: well
5: done?
2: Well done
4: for a queen.
3: And so the series ends, pretty much where I Claudius begins, with Octavian ready to forge a new Roman Empire with a new name of Augustus. And that is The Cleopatras. It's never had a commercial release, and it's been on YouTube forever without being taken down, so I imagine the BBC have no intention of releasing it any time soon. But do I actually recommend it? I would say it's a fascinating drama, but not always for the right reasons. Sometimes it's gripping, other times it's very silly, and the overall feel is very disjointed. Some of the performances are excellent, Robert Hardy in particular, and some are woeful. I suppose in summary I applaud its ambition, but seriously question the manner of its execution. Whatever Mackie, Slater and Francois were going for doesn't quite come off, and I can't imagine that many of the British public stayed with it all the way through. For me, I'm just pleased that after 37 years, I've finally seen it, after some initial glimpses of various actors in their pants in a January 1983 radio times, images which quickly suggested to this 10-year-old, that this wasn't going to be a series we'd sit down together to watch as a family. You may be wondering why I've recorded this for Around the Archives, rather than selecting it for a future episode of an A to Z of UK TV drama. Well, partly because I wasn't sure if it was fair to subject my co-host Martin to it, partly because I have another drama beginning with C up My Sleep for our second run, and partly because I didn't want to stop contributing to Andrew and Lisa's lovely podcast. Thanks for having me again, you two. A final word to anyone planning to watch The Cleopatras, strap in, suspend your disbelief, and make sure there are enough asps to go round.
0: Okay, it's time for your quiz-based answers. Number one, Terry and June, did it reach 50 episodes? Yes, comfortably 65, in fact, in full. Number two, sorry, 42, so that did not. Number three, bless this house. Yes, another 65 episode Number four, the thick of it. No, just 23 episodes. Five, after Henry. No, only 23 episodes. Six, the British Empire. Just 52 episodes, just peaked over. Number seven, mind your language. Sadly, their language could only sustain 42 episodes of comedy-based comedy. Eight, Heidi High. Yes, 58 episodes. Nine, My Hero. Amazingly, yeah, yes, yes, it did. 51 episodes. And ten, Hardwick House. Yeah, all right. that one might have been a bit too easy. No, there were seven episodes made, but only two aired, of course. And thus concludes the RTA 50th anniversary fun quiz. I'll be back later in the episode with some slightly more anarchic comedy-based antics. But for now, back to you.
1: Many thanks to Andy and to Ben for that.
2: Yes.
0: All good stuff. Yes, we've
2: been watching the Cleopatras.
1: Yes, well, I've enjoyed one or two points. Yes,
2: (laughs) it's interesting. We've got two more episodes to go. Yeah, Mm -hmm. good good stuff. So, uh, next up. Hang on, hang on, hang on.
1: I don't think we should introduce everything. It is our 50th episode, after all. Right. And I think we deserve at least one guest presenter. Okay. So I think we should have somebody, like, young, hip, happening, upcoming. Okay. So here's Macdonald Hobley.
5: This is the BBC Television Service. Good evening. My name is Macdonald Hobley, and tonight...
3: For one night and only one night, I'm going to don the mantle of an Alley Pally
5: announcer and tell you what we have in store for you. At 6.30, you can see an episode based on James Herriot's best-selling books about a vet in the Yorkshire Dales. All creatures, great and small. But until then, why not sit back
4: and enjoy again the bawdy humour of Up Pompeii, starring Frankie Howard need i say more i seen a man getting water before. <laughs> now, you are a strange lot, I must say. That's, uh, now, listen, settle down now, please. That's it. Settle down now. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear, I'm all, well, I wish I'd put my waterproof knickers on. The house. <laughs> Never mind. Now, settle down now and please, no untoward tittering. <laughs>
1: Good afternoon,
2: Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew.
1: So I've shown you the complete Up Pompeii, haven't yes. I? Or well, at least the complete BBC Up Pompeii. Yes, there's one, I, Pompeii.
2: one RTV one, which we'll, we'll wash at some point. Yes.
1: Right, so. But what did you think going into it? Did you have any preconceptions? Yeah,
2: I, well, I thought it was going to be a sort of television carry-on in a way. Yeah. But it's it's much more than that. There right. are a lot of um, double entendres and all the things on show but there's a lot of it's very much built around frankie howard and his act and his interaction with the audience
1: i mean i was surprised how much production they managed to squeeze into a year's period yeah because the Mm. you've got the pilot episode Mm -hmm. but then you've got essentially two seasons done in 1970 yes and that's a hell of a lot of work it is. to get through. It is. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's um, scripted by Talbot Rothwell of the, mm-hmm. of the Carry On films. Um, Sid Colin sort of joins on the second season yeah. as, as co-writer. And you've got um, three producers credited, Michael mm-hmm. Mills, David Croft and Sidney Lotterby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, I just love the idea about its origins that apparently Michael Mills and Tom Sloan from Mm -hmm. BBC Comedy were on holiday in Pompeii Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael Mills' Mrs Valerie Leon wasn't there because she was making uh, Carry On Camping wasn't Mm -hmm. she demonstrating how to stick the pole up yes (laughs) with Charles Mm (sighs) Hortrick
4: I'm sorry Mr Short the gentleman kept touching things that's quite right you see I've been bursting to know what it's like inside a tent I see. All right, Miss Dobbin, I'll attend to this customer, <laughs> sir. Splendid girl, and so helpful. Do you know she's been showing me how to stick the pole up?
1: Right. And so they were on holiday there, sort of going around the ruins. And um, Michael Mills had seen Frankie Harrod, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, mm-hmm. which is the the Roman play, isn't mm. it? Cause that's got and jo- film and film because that's got John Pertwee in. Yes um kenneth connor in it hasn't yes. it yeah and it's just just weird the connections mm-hmm. there are with this but they're, yeah they're on holiday and he just goes i expect to see frankie howard wandering about here and mm. tom stone goes why why not then mm. so they get on to talbot roth on it is very much mm-hmm. it's got to be frankie howard yes. there's nobody else considered at all no. this is this is frankie howard's show mm-hmm. Um, I like the other idea that the research involves the designer Sally Holt going to Pompeii with a sketchbook yes. and a camera, yeah. just to make sure that she's got sort of some idea. What do you um, think of the set, though? It's quite basic. Yes, but...
2: yes. The, the second series set is more seems to be smaller than the first. Yeah, it's just very much. It's only a couple of sets, really. It's just the street and the house, yeah. isn't it? Oh, and, and the other house. On slave market, actually, it's more sets than I thought. Yeah. Really, but the, but the so. setup is
1: that uh, Frankie Howard as Lurkio comes yes. in and tries to sit down <laughs> to tell us, the audience at home, the prologue. Yes, he which
2: never, is, never manages yeah. it because he gets interrupted.
1: Yeah, and you do pick up a little bit of sort of mythology here, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So, so there is a bit of intellectualism yeah. going on. It's, it's, it's not all rude jokes. No. And the whole idea of him talking to the audience is, mm-hmm. I think, very well used, yes. isn't it? Because even when things go wrong, yeah, he can he can make something of it, yeah. or, or get people to repeat a line yeah. if if it's been slightly fumbled.
2: But I'm not sure how much of that is it going on, and how much is is written in the script for him.
1: Well, his, his writers always used to say that yeah. all the ooh, ah, ums, misses, yeah. If you'd write it in the script he'd say well I do that yeah. and if you didn't write it in the script he'd he'd ask where were they yeah you know? I've seen Alan Simpson say that mm-hmm. and I've seen other people say that as well so but yeah the 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 interaction of the studio audience is important yes. here. Yep. It wouldn't work as well no. without the studio audience. Mm. And again, I think that's why the film... I've seen the film. Yeah. And it's all right. Mm-hmm. But it's it's nowhere near got the energy that this no, has got. No,
2: because he's not talking to the audience
1: yeah. all the time. Because I don't know how quickly they they'd have made it, it, it they they ran for a sort of you know about half an hour yeah. roughly they, they sometimes yeah. go a bit over further up on page 45 minutes yes but whether that was recorded in virtual real time mm-hmm. yeah there are a few bits where you've had to cut away to maybe do a sort of a, a, a change of costume yeah. or, or things like that or a that. scene change yeah. well let's yeah. talk about the changes of costume oh yeah i
2: mean there's the particular episode for that, um, the second episode of the series one, we're playing both Lurcio and Julius Caesar. Yeah. So he has to keep changing costume between those two characters. And in the end, they make a thing of it, that it, it doing it on screen and it going wrong and seeing his underpants and, and all sorts of...
1: Because there is one bit done with a really dreadful CSO, isn't, oh, isn't there, yeah. where he sort of opens a door. Yeah. And yeah. there's there's two of him but mm-hmm. you even get to see the bbc um sort of dresser yeah. at one point because he's helping him on with his with his robes and mm-hmm. then the thing falls over yes you also you also get to see his underpants a lot in you this do. series don't you, you do, yeah
2: <laughs> more, more than you probably might wish to yeah some so. of them
1: are really quite <laughs> loud yes is the, that the word
2: the, the one in the in the episode where he's julius caesar he's got bright red silk boxers on yeah or white bright red boxers very noticeable <laughs>
1: But you've got a core cast of regular characters. Yes. You? you you've got Ludicrous Sextus mm-hmm. who is his owner. Yes. Now, Ludicrous Sextus is like the changing face of Ludicrous Sextus, yes, isn't it? He's
2: played by three different actors. Yeah.
1: So who have we got?
2: So we've got um Max Adrian. Yeah. Wally Seaton. Yeah. And Mark Dingham.
1: Yeah. And there is a recent audio version as well. Yes. And who's the new look ludicrous sextus? Fraser Hines. Fraser Hines. We
2: must listen to that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That that's 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 that was done a couple of years ago. Yeah, wasn't it's it? for the
2: fiftieth. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and yeah, you've got mm. um, Tim Brook Taylor as a guest in that mm. as well. So that that nicely links in with our our goodies piece mm-hmm. last time. You've also got Camille Kaduri, haven't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. and uh, madeline smith is ammonia yes so <laughs> ammonia in the in the tv series yeah is elizabeth lana i don't mm-hmm. really know her no, from other things i don't think
2: she's she's she obviously has done the other stuff mm. but i think this is probably one of her more high profile parts yeah so
1: you've got nauseous mm-hmm. as well who's who's the young son strange yes. boy strange boy mm. And he, he's always falling in love, isn't yes, he? Yes, and
2: writing odes yeah. that never rhyme, fortunately.
1: <laughs> They've always got r- rude implications, yes, they have, haven't they? Yes. Right? they never, but mm-hmm. you never think of the last last word.
4: His mm-hmm. ode, behold her beauty, fine as gold, as great as Rome's fair cities. <laughs> Greater by far and joy to behold is the greatness of her intellect. <laughs> I couldn't think of a word to rhyme there. Is that one? The, the sender of the first correct solution will receive two free tickets to our spectacle.
1: And uh you've also got uh Senna the Soothsayer as yes. well. Uh Gene Mockford who has mm-hmm. to come in and go, whoa, whoa, and
2: <laughs> And thrice were Yeah. Uh, Though in the um, pilot episode, she's called Cassandra. Yes. Who obviously is is um, famous as the soothsayer from Troy. Yeah, because
1: so. Cassandra's in the Myth Makers, she of is. course. Yes. And then you've also got Erotica as well. Who mm-hmm. is the daughter? Yes. Who's Georgina Moon most of the time, but Jennifer Lonsdale in the yeah. in the in the special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But guest stars. Mm. Just look at that list. It's amazing. Isn't it is. It? So you've got Willie Rushton as a regular in the first series yes, as Plautus, Plautus, yeah. Who appears to live in the clouds. Yes, he seems he? to be
2: somewhere between Earth and Olympus. Yeah, yeah. And he's
1: got various sort of girls to help yes. him, hasn't he? And he? Scribes. He says wise words. Yes, and th- things like that. Um, but yeah, the the pilot. How mm-hmm. do you think the pilot works? You know, would you would you have commissioned from that? It's it's a, it's a little Probably, yeah. loose. Yes. It's a little loose, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Um, But it, it it works well. And I, I, it works well enough. And having having seen some sort of gore awful pilots. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> this is better than Sam. Oh yes. But you've got yeah. John Junkin in there as odious.
2: Yeah.
1: And Aubrey Woods as, as Captain Billious. Oh
2: yeah who well. does a lot of jumping out of windows and things.
1: Yeah, It's actually Ruth Harrison, as Cassandra, the soothsayer, in the pilot episode. Oh, the right,
2: same. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. one it was, well, No. Well, well right. she's so dirtied up, the actress, that you can barely see... I mean, particularly in the last series, she's just sort of grey the whole <laughs> she's time. She's
1: grimy, isn't she? Yeah. But, yeah, episode one proper is, is Vestal Virgins, isn't mm-hmm. it? So... You've got Miss Vestal version of 72 BC. Uh, you've got Hugh Paddock in there as a, yes. as a bingo caller. Yes. He's, he's having fun, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And Leon Thau is noxious. Yes. Leon Thau, director for various Thames shows, in, mm-hmm. including uh, Michael Benteen's Potty Time in The Tomorrow People.
2: Okay. Yeah. But
1: your, I think your favourite in that one is Geoffrey Hughes, isn't it? Yes. And why is Geoffrey Hughes so brilliant in that Because he's got a
2: really high pitched voice, which is very silly. Can you do it? No, I don't think I can go that high. But uh, yeah. He's, yeah, he's got this high pitched voice and he's talking to, to um, Lurkio, and then Lurkio starts doing it and he goes back and says, He's got a funny voice. That's as near as I can get to it. <laughs> that,
1: that was pretty good. <laughs> But yeah, the Ides of March is, I think, where you really see it's a David Croft mm. show. Because um, yeah. you've got Jeremy Young in there as Ponderous. Mm-hmm. You've got Wendy Richard as yes. Sopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Gillespie as Mucus. Mm. Uh, we we um, d- Did he um, Twitter us or did, did think, we Twitter I, him? I, think I can't we, remember. We'd
2: said something about it and he replied. But he remembered being yes. in
1: it, yeah. Yes. And uh, Michael Knowles, Colin Bean, and Nicholas Smith as yes. well, because <laughs> there's a lot of sting going on, isn't there? there it is. is it hiss, hissing?
2: Yeah, no, he's sort of. Pssst. Mm. Yeah, because
1: cause they, they've got their sort of, um, they're plotting, aren't yes. they? Yes, about uh, about about killing the emperor. Uh,
2: yeah. I would point out. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the niggly thing. Yeah. Julius Caesar wasn't actually the emperor at that right. point. He was the dictator of Rome. Yeah. Emperor doesn't actually come into use until Augustus. Okay. And apparently, it means um, general. Okay. It doesn't actually mean it. It comes to mean like what we know it to mean, yeah. but only purely for the fact that when Augustus became it, Livia or he positioned it to mean that. Okay. So before it just meant it meant or general.
1: And you've got the Senator and the Asp. Yeah. Uh that features um Norman Mitchell mm-hmm. as Stovus Primus. Yes. I do like some of the There are some names. silly names. Mm-hmm. Uh Valerie Leon finally makes it mm-hmm. on, on screen as, as daily. Mm-hmm. And um a certain Derek Francis. Yes. Yes. Is lecherous. Yeah. Yeah. he's quite fun, isn't he? he, he it's always nice to see Derek De- Francis Derek and things.
2: Derek Francis he's uh, the look, only thing that can make her brother vaguely decent yeah so
1: but i, I just like the idea that he gets to play roman again yeah. after after the romans mm-hmm. so yeah uh, next one's uh, britannicus mm-hmm. so that's unusual yes In that we actually have some well it's not it's not outside film no, but we we, we we get to move enough. out of pompeii for a bit mm-hmm and uh we we learn a bit about Lurcio's uh, English heritage, don't we? We do.
2: We yeah. we learn that he's actually from Britannicus. Yeah. He's uh, he was captured there and brought back to uh, Pompeii. Or Pompey. He's always calling it Pompey. Yeah. That's yeah. just up the road from us. It That's is. Portsmouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Nearly right. Mm. But yeah, that one's that one's quite fun. Um and you said uh, there's there's a little link there for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got ludicrous Sextus being played by, by Max Adrian, mm-hmm. uh, but Wallace Eaton turns up as a as a sergeant in that. He does. He? Yeah, yes. So it's interesting the way you you know mm-hmm. um, they they just pick somebody that's been in it before.
2: Well, it's probably easier. To it's come just, back, isn't it? It's just working on the theory. I think that did he get on with Frankie Howard? Yes. Yeah. Give him the part. Yeah. Because Frankie Howard could be. A little bit difficult yeah. at times. Though Nicholas Courtney spoke very highly of him. Mm-hmm. So I think if he liked you, he really liked you. If he didn't like you, that was it.
1: And there's the actors, mm-hmm. which is the first appearance of Olwyn Griffiths. Yes. Who turns up again in Further Up Pompeii. Does, yeah. Um yeah. And Bill Maynard as well.
2: Oh, yeah, with big glasses it's on. percentus. Yeah. yeah.
1: Is, mm-hmm. a, is he a sort of agent? Yeah, he's or a something?
2: sort of. Yeah, here to manage a stroke agent, isn't <laughs> but it? But it is
1: like he's wandered in from the gaffer, isn't it? Even <laughs> a little the, bit. The yeah. gaffer hasn't started yet. Yeah. You know, Bill Maynard is Bill Maynard, no matter yeah. what he's what he's playing. Really, <laughs> uh, the love potion, which is an idea we return to later. Isn't yes,
2: it? never waste a good idea.
1: No. Mm. Um, so you have got Linda Barron there mm-hmm. as uh, Ambrosia and uh, John Ringham.
2: Oh gosh, yes.
1: And Molly Sugden as well. Mm-hmm. And Queenie Watts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, John Cater as Castor Oilus. Yes. And yeah, because, uh, was it the apothe- the is a Castor and Pollux? Yes. Aren't they? Yes. Always, always, always a good name for comedy, Pollux, isn't mm. it? Yeah. And then The Legacy mm-hmm. um, opens the second season. Yes. Which is uh, all about an uncle who's died. Uh huh. Um, and says that they've got to have a, a child named after him. Yeah,
2: and they'll get some money. Yeah. Mm.
1: So you've got Pat Coombs mm-hmm. as Tartar the sorceress, <laughs> and the first appearance of Bunny May in, oh, as Hermes.
2: Gosh, he's amazing. Because he's painted he's, all over like, like
1: silver, yeah, isn't he? Yeah,
2: that must have just taken. And they've ever. slapped
1: that on.
2: They have. They. It must have taken. He must have been getting that off for the next week or so. Yeah. Because it, you know, I mean, it's obviously obviously only over his face and his hands. Yeah.
1: but he's got he's got a silly sort of hat on with yes. wings.
2: Well, he's, he's Hermes, the messenger well, god, yeah, isn't he?
1: And a sort of a skirt that you can see up. Yes, because he's lowered down on on wires, isn't yeah. he? I
2: like he's, he's just he's, he's really he's like hello. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he's got another silly voice as well. Yeah. <laughs> silly voices are popular too. Yeah. Roman holiday. Mm-hmm. lucio agrees to hide two escaped slaves. Yeah. So you have got Kenneth J. Warren as as felonious, mm-hmm. um, and yes, uh, the, the the memorable Lititia. <laughs>
2: um,
1: now, according to the story, her sister doesn't have a have a name, but mm-hmm. um, Graham McCann's book yes uh, lists uh, Twigia, uh <laughs> as as a name, yes. which which is quite quite appropriate yes yeah, yeah. what's next James bondus
2: oh you get george baker george baker is a roman about five years before i claudius
1: yeah yeah
2: looking pretty much the same really yeah, yeah.
1: Uh... i mean we should plug andy and martin's oh yes podcast yes. for i claudius so that's tv yes. drama pod, pod, yes. podcast and
2: a to z of...
1: uk tv drama um, we've just done i claudius they
2: have Yes, it's two and a half hours plus yeah. long. but yeah, Worth listening to, though.
1: But, yeah, George Baker comes into some James Bond music, doesn't yes, he?
2: which apparently they cut on a previous release. Yeah. yeah.
1: And Patricia Haynes as, as Pussus Galoria. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but, uh, oh, Larry Martin.
2: He always seems to be Larry it's, Martin. Larry Martin's
1: always in this yeah. show.
2: Again, he's another David Croft regular. I mean, obviously, yeah. this series, the second series is... Um, Sydney Lotterby. Yeah. But uh, Yeah.
1: So there's the peace treaty. Mm-hmm. So that's Oh yeah. That that, that involves the ladies not um how should we put it?
2: Cohabiting. Yeah. Mm. Um, and Frankie Howard gets to do drag, doesn't he?
1: Oh god, yes. Yes. Well how do you think he pulls that off? Um Is, is it at all? Just about doesn't he have trouble with his bosom
2: yeah they keep escaping yeah
1: <laughs> nymphia mm-hmm. inevitably uh barbara windsor yes comes mm. in and does a bit of a dance you've got roy stewart in there as yes. jeremy yes. which is a brilliant name mm. and um yeah you you, you get a a, a a joke nicked from uh, carrying up the Khyber, don't you mm. um as, as in may, may it shine upon yours and, oh and, yes and, and up yours yeah. yes but yes if you're allowed to steal from your own yeah. from your own gang, well,
2: his stuff isn't it Is that, yeah.
1: Yeah. um and then final episode of um the last series uh exodus mm-hmm. so that's Paul Whitson Jones Yeah, was it they're, they're going off and they're going to um sell Lurkio mm-hmm. to the slave trade, and, and there's Larry Martin again
2: yes it's his <laughs> third appearance yeah
1: mm. oh because of course he uh He's in the one where they're in the in the
2: um in the prison.
1: Well, oh, we haven't done Spartacus. No, you miss we? Spartacus. I
2: miss Spartacus. Miss Spartacus. We should. Spartacus. We should yeah.
1: say about Spartacus.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Sean Curry? Yeah. So Spartacus
1: occurs between the actors and the love potion, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And there's this brilliant sort of extended scene mm-hmm. where everybody ends up in the cell, don't yes. they? Because yes. everybody gets arrested.
2: Yeah. Because isn't Wallace Eaton in that one as well? Yeah,
1: well, yeah, Wallace Eaton is is the is the centurion captain. Is so he's in, presumably in that one. the
2: same character from the Britannicus episode. He, he
1: might have. He might have gone up in the world. Well, but he... yeah, yeah, but yeah, Larry Martin's the jailer in this is. one, isn't he? Yeah. And yeah, um, it's all about the the slaves sort of rising up, isn't yes. it? And uh
2: Rebe- rebelling
1: for a bit? Lurkio's in charge in that as yep. well, isn't he? But uh, mm. that, that inevitably that doesn't last long. No. So yeah, Exodus is the is the is the final one. Mm-hmm. And he gets sort of sold into slavery And like He's the, Not sold into slavery. Well, it, well, no, he is a slave. He is a slave. Yeah. He's sold, He's sold the, on. on. Yes. But um the, the sort of woman next door buys him for what what does she want him for to Um it, to administer to her needs. Yes. That's Aphrodite, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Mm. And then uh, further up Pompeii, which mm. we've which we've just done. Yeah. Which mostly involves an orgy yep. and more mixing up of potions. Yes. And you've got mm. Lindsay Duncan in that one. Yes. I hadn't realised it was her. Yeah,
2: she must be one of her very first professional acting roles. Yeah. Which is, you know, when you consider she's quite a serious actress yeah. to have this on her um a sort of C V. And to have mostly been cast for certain attributes. Yeah. Or have those attributes um helped <laughs> is, you know Sees how much we've moved on.
1: But it's interesting with further up Pompeii, it actually exists on its original tapes. Most yes. of the series is is conversions from um, I think they're Canadian copies so they're mm. 525 line All right, okay. and although they've had reverse standards conversion done on it, there's only so much picture quality you you can drag out of them
2: There's a lot of drops in the tape Yeah, yeah. There,
1: there, there's bits where there's individual frames that mm. are really sort of bad basically yeah. and getting up close to Look at them on the DVD. They are mm-hmm. they are pretty. It's
2: quite soft, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: they are. They are pretty wobbly in places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. other things are pretty wobbly in places, but yeah, <laughs> so is the picture quality too. Yes. But I've really enjoyed doing these. Yes. Yeah. They're well written. They're not over clever, are they? No. Um, but you you as with any good sort of farce, mm-hmm. you do have to sort of pay attention. Some, yes.
2: Sometimes. Yes, they are very much in yes in that kind of um vein of people one person goes out of one door and somebody comes in the other door yeah which if you see it on stage is incredibly hard to do because it's got to be timed to the absolute second yeah
1: i mean i I've, i remember when they were sort of repeated i think it was the early 90s mm-hmm. and it was really nice to see because mm-hmm. of course frankie harrod had a bit of a comeback then yes. didn't he because yeah. he's one of those people that sort of in and out of yeah sort of popularity mm-hmm. sometimes and uh, I think sort of Doctor Who fandom embraced it because uh, Frankie Howard even turns up in the Paul Cornell novel No Future. Okay. As, I think he's in some weird sort of cyberspace sequence where he's Professor X or something, and he's right. he's he's, he's, he's sit- sitting he's got a pillar box as a Tardis or okay. something like that, mm-hmm. and he's still trying to do the prologue in that. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, these these um, these these are nice to have in your collection. Mm-hmm. And th- they are, you know, sort of rewatchable. I yeah. think. But what do you Oh, I what realised. You what's your favourite bits?
2: I like the James Bond one. That's very silly. There's yeah. lots of silliness going on. There's, there's bits in every episode that I like. I do like the Julius Caesar episode. Because whether it is actually stuff genuinely going up wrong or whether it's written into the script, mm. there's a lot of sort of fumbling and silliness and, and ad-libbing or so-called ad-libbing. And, yeah, it's... That he's one of my favourites, but yeah, I mean, I've realised that I think um because I I have seen that Pompey before, but I think I've seen the second series, and not the first. Because yeah. I, when I saw Wally Seaton's version of Ludicrous Sextus it I remembered that more than Max Adrian's, who I do like. Yeah. He does a good tut, does Max Adrian. Where does he go? He goes tut 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 well, Lydic- one more. Yeah. Tut. <laughs> 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 There's a lot of that. There's a lot. There's a bit where he's looking for... Lurkyo's looking for the keyhole of uh, his mistress and I think it's the James Bond episode. And he's going, ooh! And he does another one. And he's like, what, there's one more. Ooh! And this all this silly interaction, it really is Frankie mm. Howard's playing to the camera and yeah. playing to the audience. Well, that's the thing. It,
1: it, it relies on his ability to hold an audience, doesn't yeah. it? And there are some people that just... Although they'd be good actors, mm. they just wouldn't have that no. in- interaction. And this is what makes it. Because essentially we're being told the story or narrated the story mm-hmm. uh, by Lurkio. So you need somebody yeah. that can that can do that. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's quite a sort of special specialist art, I think. Yes. So, yeah, the, the, the whole point, you know, that this was Frankie Howard. Mm-hmm playing the part it wasn't we had the part and who can we cast in it so that really comes across and it is is really a strong sort of showcase for it i mean there are other you know there are other frankie harrod shows later in this vein Mm -hmm. there's whoops baghdad yeah um which i haven't been brave enough to watch (laughs) no but we did watch the first episode of then churchill said to me yes which again features frankie harrod in a double role
2: yes it does. And yeah.
1: of course Nick Courtney as well. Yes. But yeah. that that wasn't actually shown um when it was meant to because of the Falklands War. Yes, it was not so. shown
2: till um ten years later. Yeah,
1: 93 actually yeah. gets shown. The yeah.
2: year after Frankie Howard or after Frankie Howard died, yeah. I think. So.
1: But what did you think of Churchill? Uh, the first um, episode because we've only watched the first episode. I, I it's don't, okay. Yes,
2: I don't know. I've seen enough of it yet to really form an opinion. Yeah. I don't think it's probably as good no. as Up um, Pompeii, because although you are getting a bit of talking to the audience, you're obviously not getting the further interaction of because in some ways, up Pompeii is almost like a pantomime in that he gets the audience involved. Yeah. So he looks like he's asking them questions. He got them to sort of talk to the senator yeah. at one point, so... Because
1: we're asked to keep an eye on sort yeah. of ludicrous sexters so it one really point. is like yeah. a
2: pantomime. It's like, yeah. you know, can you watch the cow kind yeah. of thing.
1: And if, if something happens, tell me. Yeah.
2: You know, yeah. So where, obviously, Churchill is a much more... There isn't
1: that. Yeah, it's just more more a typical sitcom. Yeah, isn't it?
2: It, yeah. there is a bit of, of him talking to the audience, but they do that in other sitcoms, and it's there's no winner of the interaction. What,
1: what do you think of his wig in this one?
2: Um, I did notice it was a different colour to his hair. Yeah, his hair's sort of because he's know. got this
1: sort of band
2: around yeah. his I head. To keep it on. I, I'm just
1: wondering if that is just to keep the hair on. Because yeah, I know we,
2: we've seen a documentary about you know Frank Howard and Alan Simpson said that to keep his wig on, he used to tie, get too long bits of hair and tie it on top of his head <laughs> in a knot. In a knot <laughs> to keep it on.
1: That's
2: so. good. I just you know so I think sometimes you get to the stage where you should just um, gracefully Accept let age. It. Yes, be accepted.
1: But so all in all, yeah, big thumbs up to Up Pompeii. Yes. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, we, we might get round to seeing the ITV one, but yeah. Um, yeah. I think the BBC ones are the place to go first by, yes. by far, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So there you are. Mm-hmm. So that's our recommended show, isn't it?
2: It is. Okay, and we'll see you again. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>
1: Thank you for helping with that, Lisa.
2: Thank you, Andrew.
1: Well, we have to thank each other, don't we? We do,
2: yes.
1: And now, Martin takes a look at an episode of...
2: Softly, Softly Task Force.
5: Softly Softly Task Force, Series 1, Episode 10, Open and Shut, by Alan Pryor, with... Very good reason. We're very big fans of Z-Cars here on the Round the Archives podcast, not least because it's run as a contemporary, cutting-edge television drama between the years 1962 to 1978, covers the transition from live transmission to recorded studio drama, the change from black and white to colour broadcasting in the United Kingdom, and a whole host of changing attitudes and priorities in the society it was reflecting and reporting upon, written by the best television dramatists working in what might now be regarded as something of a Golden Age. But we're also big fans of the various spin-offs. That built upon the success of the characters and worlds created in the original series, and in the case of Z Cars, that turns out to be one heck of a lot of spin-offs. Because Z Cars, despite its own 800 plus episodes run, begat Softly Softly, which then begat Softly Softly Task Force, and the begatting continued, with Barlow at large, Barlow, and even those favourites in these parts, Jack the Ripper, and Second Verdict. Many of these series were built around the character of Charlie Barlow, as played for over 15 years by Stratford Johns, and at the time of task force, currently a detective chief superintendent, alongside his long-suffering colleague John Watt, played by Frank Windsor, and once Barlow started to get his own eponymous spin-offs, it would ultimately be John Watt, alongside Norman Bowler's Harry Hawkins, who would do most of the heavy lifting on the seven-year, 149-episode run of Task Force. Task Force itself was a revamp of Softly Softly, a series built around the work of the regional crime squads and was titled after the old adage, Softly Softly Catchy Monkey. And it was a series which ran for five series in the 1960s alongside the parent programme's headcast and was thought in need of a revamp with the introduction of BBC colour television at the end of the decade. At first, it was simply going to be called Task Force. But seeing as there was a fondness for the recognised Softly Softly brand, it was wisely decided that the name was kept, albeit adapted slightly, for the changing times, and released into the wider world in weekly 50-minute episodes in seasons ranging from 13 to 26 episodes a year at the back end of 1969. Anyway. If we go right back to the beginning of Softly Softly Task Force, the premise is basically that both Barlow and Watt have gone up in the world, and DCS Barlow is in charge of two task forces in the fictional Thamesford Constabulary, which is made up of a mixture of CID and uniformed officers, and at this point Detective Superintendent Watt is serving as his deputy. Task Force 2 is mentioned, but rarely seen, and it is mostly stories involving Task Force 1, with which we are concerned in the series as it continues. At this point, alongside Barlow and Watt and Inspector Hawkins, several other regulars feature in the series, including the stout, uniformed Welsh officer Sergeant Bob Evans, played by David Lloyd Meredith, PC Henry Snow, played by Terence Rigby, Woman Detective Constable Betty Donald, played by Susan Tebbs, and Sergeant Richard Jackson, played by David Alistair. They are all answerable to Walter Gotell's Chief Constable Arthur Cullen, who, alongside Watt, Hawkins, Evans and Snow, would stick with the show for a long time. Other cast members would come and go over the 8th series, but these are the main characters in place midway through the first series. Even Inky the dog in his replacement Radar could be considered part of this long list of regular characters, a roster which allowed for different characters to feature in individual episodes and for others to not be there at all from time to time. For example, the episode I've chosen to focus on today only features Barlow, Watt, Hawkins, Donald and Evans from the regulars, and so we hear nothing of Cullen, Snow, Jackson or Inky in this tale of domestic strife on the harder side of the tracks. I chose this episode because it was one that really made a memorable impression on me when I first watched the first series through a few months back, Uh, but also because it deals to a certain extent with the notion of forensic science in a very early 1970s way, which I found interesting given that forensics, or rather crime scene investigation, became a huge part of the crime drama genre in the early part of the 21st century. It was written by Alan Pryor and directed by Frank Cox and is a fairly representative episode of the type not written series format creator Elvin Jones, who would write the scripts for 43 episodes, more than a quarter of the entire run of the show. Alan Pryor himself would write 24 episodes of Task Force, this his third for that first series. To add to the 17 he wrote for the original Softly Softly, and the more than 100 he wrote for Cars. so he could be considered a safe pair of hands, even though his writing is often held by some in less than the greatest esteem. Certainly, there is a wide streak of blatant misogyny running through this episode, and it's sometimes hard to tell whether this is his own opinion seeping through or merely the requirements of his storyline. But as it is a suggestion that has been levelled at several other stories he scripted over the years, including some of the five Blake Seven episodes he wrote, it's kind of hard to dismiss lightly, even if those attitudes might be very much considered to be of their time as he died in 2006 and his last television writing credit is from 1993. Perhaps it would be unfair of me to delve much deeper for this piece, but it's a criticism worth keeping in mind as the story progresses. The episode I've chosen is called Open and Shut, and it was the 10th episode of the first season broadcast and aired on the 29th of January, 1970. Alongside the jaunty brass bandery of the theme tune, one of the things that always strikes me whenever I decide to slip another episode of Softly Softly Task Force into the player is the fact that they bothered to keep on making different re-edits of the opening titles using different shots of the various cast members in all sorts of locations, but not necessarily one specific to the episode you are about to watch. This is no tonight's episode montage like Mission Impossible or Space 1999, but just a sequence seemingly picked at random from several that seem to have been constructed for the show, which is by the BBC standards of the day, something of an expensive seeming curio. Although, perhaps VT film editing wasn't that expensive, really, and it just kept everything fresh as the week sped by. Regardless, in terms of establishing the motivations of the plot, we are immediately flung into a domestic argument featuring three characters, two men and a woman. The woman in question is Gillian Martell, playing Betty Brewer, which gives us two Bettys in this episode, with policewoman Detective Constable Betty Donald, so I hope it doesn't get too confusing. Betty Brewer is being argued over, often in extreme close-up, by two angry blokes. One is a burly geezer named Tom Jarrett, played by Athol Coates, and the other is a slighter, seedier type, in a shiny suit. This is Jerry Proctor, and he is played with a certain oily, smoky charmlessness by Douglas Rain. Yes. The two blokes are indeed in the great tradition that the good life would pick up several years later, called Tom and Jerry. Although the antics involving ordinary household objects brandished as weapons that are about to occur, thankfully off-screen, will not have the same non-lethal results here. As the episode opens, however, the woman in question is not present, and so the two gentlemen are going at sorting out their mutual jealousy hammer and tongs until she does arrive to find all this nonsense going on in a downstairs parlour. There are, as ever, in such situations, arguments about money. And it seems that Betty, with the full knowledge of Tom, has been buying herself fur coats, but not apparently knickers, watches, brooches and dresses, all of which seem to imply the aspirations of the time for the poorer classes of society. All in all, she's been spending Tom's small amount of inheritance money for as long as he's had some. And she has transformed from someone he was mad for into someone he is mad at. And... Now he no longer finds her attractive. As Tom is about to announce that he's off to the pub and leave Betty and Jerry to whatever arrangements they might have had in mind, a couple of policemen arrive at the door as this loud domestic disturbance has been disturbing the neighbours. In amongst the exchange of names and banter about ding-dongs and barnies and soft-soaping to give it an authentic streetwise air, or a common and vulgar one in BBC drama terms, we learn that Betty, someone who is more interested in Billy, her white poodle and the men in her life, wants rid of Tom because it's her house and she wants to move a new lodger or a newer model of cash source into his room. And with the policeman issuing a warning that they don't want to have to come back if only they knew... Betty announces that she's going to crush Tom with a cruel I don't love you anymore and laughs a cruel laugh. It's easy to forget many of the details contained in this preamble in All That Follows, but it does give us, the viewers, a certain amount of insight into the motivations of both Betty and Jerry that perhaps the police officers investigating the crime that is yet to happen in this troubled household might have found useful. We are, I suppose, one step ahead, or one set of preconceptions and prejudices behind, depending, I suppose, on how much you like or dislike Betty. But it's interesting, as the entire set of opening scenes are presumably only there to help the audience feel a particular way about these characters, and cleverly form opinions upon them in a matter of moments. I always think that if a writer can make you really like or dislike someone in a couple of sentences, then they're probably doing a good job, although I do also wonder if we as viewers had discovered the crime in much the same way as the police officers do, the episode might have been experienced in a completely different way. Such are the choices of screenwriting and how you choose to tell your story. Meanwhile... Back at Task Force HQ, a large country house with a car park often filled with unmarked police vehicles that we have been introduced to over the course of the series, but we don't see an establishing shot of here, Barlow and Watt are in conference. Things appear to be going reasonably well for these newly established task forces, or as Watt puts it in his no-nonsense northern manner, we're not doing badly, but rather tempting fate, he looks forward to seeing how they do when they come across a real puzzler where the local knowledge of the local jacks might serve the discovery of the truth a little better. What is someone who trusts his instincts, his gut to solve crimes? The phone rings and he is off following a lead in his hijacking case, and once this scene ends, what won't be seen again until the very last section of the episode? The phone rings again, and Barlow finds there has been a murder, which the officer on the scene describes as an open and shut case in the sense that there's nothing complicated about it, and solving it should be pretty straightforward, although these seasoned detectives know that there's no such thing. And so we find ourselves in the enormous hallway of Betty Brewer's house, and unsurprisingly, judging by the police officer we see, there has been a crime committed here. A huge lump hammer and a knife sit significantly on a table, unbagged and untagged, but just there, and an official looking gentleman in a dark overcoat marches down the hallway to enter through a door. Perhaps more surprisingly, given the nature of crime dramas generally, the victim is not Betty, but, at this stage, somebody else. Betty is being offered a cuppa by Police Betty. Although she's doing her very best standing around numb with shock acting, and Harry Hawkins leaves strict instructions that he's to be fetched if she says or does anything, so he's obviously made up his mind about what's happened in this house. However, he is off to interview... Jerry Proctor, who is currently sitting chain-smoking whilst being interviewed under the watchful eye of Sergeant Evans and his trusty notebook. Proctor claims to be a bit shook up and is asked to go through the entire series of events from the start. The victim, for it was Tom, had come back from the boozer and whilst he claims that as a mere lodger it was none of his business how they carried on, he is very swift to point the blame in the direction of his so-called landlady. Tom, it appears, had been brooding in his room wearing his pyjamas like he was when you found him, and Jerry weaves a tale of sarcastic drunken conversations of eviction rage and lump hammers, all of which seems designed to convict Betty, who is, it seems, still sitting silently in the other room in a terrifyingly patterned blue mini-dress where Harry Hawkins now goes to keep on doing most of the talking, as Betty does appear to still be highly traumatised by what's happened in her home over the course of the evening. When she does talk, it is as earlier to inquire after a dog, and to keep on muttering statements to the effect of that this would never have happened if he hadn't come downstairs again which in modern television terms would probably have suggested some form of self-defence or perhaps some kind of prearranged discussion between the two witnesses but back at the tail end of the 1960s when this was being written perhaps less so. The plan is to take Betty to the police station for further questioning but first other Betty has to escort her upstairs to get that dress off her as well as her shoes, stockings and other things for forensic reasons and whilst this happens the modern viewer, perhaps more used to the visceral crime scenes in more recent detective dramas, might be forgiven for noticing the distinct lack of blood on that dress. Harry Hawkins seems quietly confident and tells the local Detective Chief Inspector Morris that this is about as straightforward a murder case as is possible and is sure that a conviction is guaranteed. says as much to Evans as he arrives, although Evans points out that she was in a bad way and her testimony, but he is cut off by a certain amount of confidence from Hawkins. And so, as the coroner, the doctor doing the PM and the undertakers go about their business, the camera favours the dog, who we are pretty sure at this point did not commit the crime. A forensic operative is doing a drawing in pencil on squared paper as a clock chimes and tweezers tweeze up tiny scraps of evidence and the camera pans down to the banality of crime where a pair of slippered feet attached to pyjama-clad legs protrude from under a black plastic sheet. This is not the detailed forensic world with all its little plastic markers, cameras, high-tech labs and oh-so-dedicated, perfect yet driven forensic investigators of the 21st century we have since become used to. This seems positively archaic in comparison, and yet we are not in the Dark Ages. This was merely 50 years ago and basically simply how things got done. Barlow arrives, finding out with a certain cynicism what has already been agreed between the coroner and the investigating officer. Morris reports and Barlow says he can't fault him on his side before having a chat about hammers and knives and finds out about the three or four blows from behind that killed the victim. He makes further statements matter-of-factly discussing the things ordinary people, with as far as they yet know, no previous criminal records are capable of. Although he seems alarmed at that phrase, the woman who did it, as if everyone's already made up their minds about what happened. Follow the evidence as Gil Grissom, Horatio Kane, Mac Taylor and their impossibly good-looking teams kept putting it across the pond three or more decades later. Instead, Barlow pointedly talks about the stolen whiskey Detective Superintendent Watt is busy pursuing as the Doctor takes a significant swig from his own flask. He's a whimsical old cove, is Charlie Barlow, the humour twinkling behind his eyes despite the horrors of the job, the knowing that most people are simply trying to do a difficult job to the best of their abilities. It's strangely reassuring, especially as he's very aware that he's actually far better at doing the job than any of these subordinates could ever hope to be unless, that is, you happen to get on the wrong side of him. Two people who do not want to get on the wrong side of him are the young coppers we saw in the opening scenes, one of whom now nervously explains that they had been here once before, and that all three of the characters involved were, as he puts it, at it. They had simply warned them and left it at that, and the young copper is adamant that they weren't to know how things would turn out, which is, of course, a very real worry. He's already told his story to Inspector Hawkins, but Barlow wants to hear it again, and he finds out about Proctor reporting the crime and the sick-making story of finding the body tell, not show was the approach when it came to the ghastly truth of the corruption of the flesh and the aftermath of violence in television back then. And to be honest, I don't think you lose much by not being exposed to it. A pair of slippers sticking out from under a rubber sheet is more than enough to get the point of what's happened across. In fact, the only problem with it in general is the odd blinking and breathing corpse. But that, again, is the nature of multi-camera shooting in studio. The story now leaves the scene of the crime and moves to the local police station where we find a local copper who really didn't like Betty Brewer and informs us that there relationship between her and the oily Jerry Proctor was far closer than they have been claiming and that he had been run in in the past for poncing off her as the vernacular of the time would have it he also refers to the lovely PWDC Donald as a stuck-up brass which is the kind of thing unlikely to endear him to the viewers or the writer to observers half a century of relative enlightenment later. Donald herself also seems slightly frightened of and intimidated by Barlow and given the times, why not? And after his own encounter with Proctor, even Evans is starting to voice his doubts as to quite how open and shut this case is beginning to seem. Barlow, meanwhile, goes into his office and does a little bit of business with the huge logbook on his desk, demands that the dog, who is obviously guilty of sinning, Inky would have nabbed him, is brought to the station and telephones Dr Jackley, who, it seems, has already completed his post-mortem and is available to talk. He doesn't have an office, by the way. He gets to use one of those bubble-surrounded public telephones in a corridor somewhere to pass on this information. Paging Dr Jackley. Through this, we learn that the victim died about an hour before the doctor first examined him, and that a blunt instrument was used four times to do the deed, and the knife was all but irrelevant. Well, unless you consider who might have been carrying it. We also learn a little bit about that perennial of crime scene investigation blood splatter and the distances away, about four feet apparently, so they had very long arms, certain people would have had to have been standing. So she either did it or was damn near when it was done, as Barlow puts it. The method of cutting between the two ends of a telephone conversation with the camera creeping into ever closer shots is a very effective way of getting this exposition across without it getting visually boring, by the way. And we should never undervalue how powerful two actors just talking can actually be. All of this is, I suppose, all a precursor to the kind of info-dump that would cause Amanda Burton to stare into the middle distance for hours in episode after episode of Silent Witness a few decades later. Meanwhile, in one interview room, Harry Hawkins is rather smugly having a formal interview with the woman everyone has pretty much decided must be guilty of sin when Barlow arrives and takes him off into a far corner to read the statement and, after congratulating Harry, once again it is stated that it's an open and shut case. Barlow asks to talk to Betty, but in a series of static close-ups she seems unable or unwilling to talk. Barlow departs. Meanwhile, in another room, Evans is having another conversation with Proctor, who is doing his best to talk at length about the money problems between Tom and Betty, despite the blood that is apparently to be found on his shiny suit. In transit, whilst in the corridor next to the strangely beige coffee machine, Barlow has another conversation with Donald before going to his own office where he is presented with Betty's little dog which, once presented to her in the interview room, does finally get her talking in a way that the old hand with the local face at the station fails to manage despite that scene with Barlow and what at the beginning as his police station biscuits are not acceptable for a sweet little doggy used to only eating best minced beef. Betty is now interviewed by Barlow, who says he'll look after the nice little doggie rather than letting the neighbours poison him, as Betty fears. If, that is, Betty will have to stay in jail, and a cup of tea is summoned. His persistence that Betty killed Tom leads to an affronted denial of killing him, which leads to both a headache and another claim that he should never have come downstairs, and an accusation that Jerry did it. Harry, meanwhile, is interviewing Jerry, and Barlow joins them, throwing his record for poncing into the mix, and the friendly atmosphere of the room turns, as we discover, his previous conviction for Ponsing underage girls. Jerry is affronted at these fancy stories and starts to whine, which leads to a very odd scene where his clothes are demanded one at a time, not all that carefully handled, and Jerry is reduced to sitting there in his vest and horrid white Y fronts. At least they would never have done that to Betty. Thankfully, is at least handed another coat to cover what's left of his dignity. In this state, he continues flinging his accusations towards Betty again, and this simple open and shut case is becoming ever more complicated, a fact lamented by Inspector Banks to an arriving John Watt as he turns up for the last ten minutes of the episode. He then gets filled in on the details as the original investigators took the witness at his word when they didn't know he was a known ponce. Evans hands the clothing in a plastic bag over to a dispatch rider, but it all seems a little haphazard to those of us used to the chain of evidence so beloved of more modern series. Different times, different ways of doing things, the past is another country. What explains the problem of the he-said-she-said nature of this situation, and the inconclusive fingerprint evidence, and then suggests he might give the allegedly struggling Barlow a bit of a hand? The local officer has no instinctive feeling in his gut as to which of these characters is the guilty party, and admits that I Either, or indeed both, of them could have committed the crime. Forensics, despite what you might have been led to believe, cannot necessarily always tell the whole story. Things begin to proceed apace now towards the enigmatic and inconclusive ending of the episode, as Barlow and Watt put their collective heads together and set about interviewing both subjects in a fast-paced series of interview scenes. In her continuing interview, it is suggested that Betty was egged on by Jerry or that she egged him on as the row in her house escalated after the victim discovered shenanigans. But she, becoming more and more scheming and unlikable by the camera cut, claims that she did nothing in the murder of Tom and that Jerry did everything. Harry's exasperation is becoming more and more pronounced and as he tries to explain that Betty told him, or in an significant correction as good as told him that she had done it when he interviewed her at home he says he gave her the chance to deny killing Tom but she didn't take up the chance but she just continues to talk about Jerry in increasingly disparaging terms claiming he was not happy unless he was fannying someone which is yet another peculiarly archaic term that pops up in the assumed street lingo of the era what brings the forensic report which really isn't the ironic big help they claim it to be and Barlow does actually and wearily it's been a long night admit that he really could use the help. Both of these old hands now interview Jerry and he's still trying to save his own neck at the expense of his old mate but then by now so is Betty so that seems fair enough even though it does muddy the waters. Wondering whether Tom's jealousy was a motive, they do manage to tag-team him into a confession of sorts, which he immediately retracts because he wasn't being serious. And that moment seemed like such a breakthrough too. In other shows, that very moment in the interview room might have been seen as the culmination of something, but in Softly Softly Task Force, we are diving into far murkier, far more complex realms. Frustrated? Barlow realises that Watt has far fresher eyes than he has but he claims he can't have an opinion until he's seen the woman. Betty by now has Hawkins tied up in metaphorical knots and insists that much of the terribly threatening things she may have been reported as having said about Tom was only idle talk and not meant to be taken seriously. After all, who hasn't screamed I'll kill him in anger at some point? Consequently, it is only over a discussion of the coal-smashing, skull-cracking hammer and how it came to be indoors, which emerges during another Barlow and Watt tag-team interview, that Barlow's temper finally boils over and he insists that they get that once-so-useful dog that Betty has been idly stroking throughout their interrogation out of the interview room. Alone. Harry's frustration is showing, and whilst Jerry complains to the officers about the clothes he's been given to wear, his whining continues with the fuzzy logic that he said that she had done it before she said that he did, and he feels that this has got to count for something. In this instance, there is no gut feeling as to where the truth is. The police remain as much in the dark about who actually did this thing as they did at the start, and all of the forensic help in the world, such as it was, cannot persuade them in either direction. It was either him or her or both, most probably both. And they have a pragmatic discussion that mirrors the one they had the previous evening, realising that Watt asked for a tricky local problem, and it seems that he indeed got one. And so, with a world weary, be careful what you wish for, Coda, they do indeed decide to charge both of the subjects for this despicable crime, knowing full well that the courts will probably have as much luck with it as they have, and that there's a reasonable chance that the perpetrators of this dreadful deed might very well end up walking away from this whole incident scot-free, and justice may never be served. Reflecting once more on the nature of these supposed open and shut cases, Barlow announces that he's going home to bed, and that's where the episode ends. Nothing is known, nothing is resolved, little is learned. It's all a little bit like real life, really, which is part of the joy of Softly Softly Task Force, all of its fellow Zedkar stablemates. You're rarely going to get a satisfyingly enclosed and resolved Villain of the Week storyline in this series, and that's the beauty of it. Sometimes the crime is solved, sometimes it isn't, and sometimes the viewer is left to wonder, and perhaps might take a moment to reflect upon and think deeply about what they've just seen. Rarely in life is any situation open and shut or black and white. Life is full of grey areas and doubts, and this kind of clever, insightful programming demonstrates this time after time after time and it's all the more gripping because of it.
2: Thank you very much, Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. We like to like softly softly Task Force, don't we? Or task force please This it's known in German.
1: And you've got some of the German discs. We do have some the German
2: discs. I did accidentally leave the German track on one time and was very confused when Frank Windsor didn't sound like Frank Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, a bit of dubbing going on yes. there, isn't it?
2: But episode
1: fifty is sort of drawing to a close yes. in that episode 50a is mm-hmm. done and dusted yes but episode 50b mm-hmm. will carry
2: on it will where it's we left depend. off
1: so we look forward to yes, greeting yes. you in that one once i finished editing it Yes,
2: with more goodies yes and different people
1: but to see us out here's ben baker looking at
2: spitting
0: image lockdown does a lot of strange things to a person Some have decided to spend the time running the equivalent of Inverness and back on a treadmill daily, whilst others simply find pleasure in eating their entire body weight in custard creams. One of my friends has filled the time with jigsaws, and frequently posts the results of these in various stages to Twitter. The other day was compiling a rather on brand for round the archives tableau comprising The Spirit of the 80s, in which the ZX Spectrum and a bird's eye supermoose sat comfortably next to a metal Mickey annual, a knockoff dusty bin, and Boy George's fashion and makeup book. But one programme dominated, in several spin off products and a TV Times cover. The images were unquestionably The Spirit of the 80s striking, ridiculous, and a little bit unsettling. All of which was extremely fitting... for Spitting Image. Despite the satirical puppet show not gracing our TV screens properly now for over 24 years, TV Insiders are forever tipping it for a comeback or trying to replace it in some way. Who remembers Headcase's? And so, when back in March, for a few days before we all learned we were going to die, the announcement Spitting Image was going to return on subscription service Britbox, surprised and delighted many. Surprising especially because a lot of it was bloody awful. Nonetheless, it represented a specific place in time for both satire and comedy, and broke through its late night Sunday evening slot to become a genuine 80s phenomenon. Which, like many 80s phenomenons, Started in the 70s. 2nd of April, 1979. The proposed date for the first in a brand new satirical spiky comedy show that would soon be eventually pulled when an election was called. This was not the nine o'clock news, itself soon to become a sensation. In amongst the regular sketches, producer John Lloyd was keen to include puppets of famous politicians doing topical monologues. At the time, many worldwide magazine and newspaper covers had been graced by grotesque, caricatured models created by Peter Fluck and Roger Law, known collectively as Look and Flaw. And so naturally this was Lloyd's first part of call. However, neither being puppet makers at that stage, or willing to work for £200 a show, the response was... Well, it was short. And involved the word off. Winter 1918! Eagle-eyed viewers of Spitting Image will have noticed the ever-present credit based on a lunch by Martin Lambie Nairn at the end of each programme. Nairn, who produced graphics for LWT's current affairs programmes, was enamoured with Radio 4's sketch series Week Ending and wondered why TV couldn't do something equivalent. A new, grown-up generation of Muppets was how he pitched it to his boss, Pat Gavin, who recommended the aforementioned Look and Floor. Eventually, Lambinard would put up £2,500 from his company funds towards what was then planned to be a 10-minute news spoof. Over the years, things snowballed, and eventually, national lampoon writer and later Spinal Tap manager Tony Hendra got involved. But progress was still thin on the ground. Cut to summer 1982. With not the 9 o'clock news both fabulously successful, but coming to an end, John Lloyd was looking for a new challenge and decided to go freelance, washing up on the shores of Spitting Image as an early partner. But despite all this activity, the sheer cost of making puppets was putting off potential investors and getting the programme made in the first place. An early investor is Sir Clive Sinclair, but he bails quickly. And so, after much pitching and tweaking of the format, Eventually, Charles Denton, the head of programming at Central Television, eventually agrees to fund a £60,000 pilot, being sold it as a not-the-nine-o'clock-news-muppet-show. To secure the cash, a ten-minute not-for-rare test video was filmed with John Lloyd's own home video camera in January 1983, with Muppet puppeteer Louise Gold's help and a short script put together by Lloyd and Ben Elton. Despite looking a bit shoddy, central we're in. 26th of February 1984 After a scrap pilot filmed in June 1983 called UNTV where the puppet secretary general linked in and out sketches via a bank of television screens in UN headquarters the first show is more traditional and goes to air in the fairly dead Sunday 10pm slot in February 84. After rejecting the titles, Acme Satire Company, Rubber News, hands up Mrs Thatcher, and the not enough money for a mental hospital show, spitting image was finally here and... Well, it wasn't very good. It was slow, the puppets barely moved, and there's a canned laughter track Central insisted upon throughout the first edition. Also missing are a certain famous British family, whose swift removal at the last minute could explain the clunkiness of that first episode.
4: What a pity... And I was so looking forward to it.
0: And the fact that Prince Philip had been invited to open the new Central Studios at Nottingham the following week had absolutely nothing to do with their decision to remove it, of course. And as soon as the ceremony was done, the production team immediately went and put all the royal sketches back in for the second week. However, there are still further problems on the horizon, with television regulators the IBA insisting on cuts to the episode's big musical number, I'm Just a Prince Who Can't Say No. Brandy. I make the girls go bandy, brandy. my blood's
5: boiling and it's blue. Brandy. I take a glass of brandy,
0: I raise it up, smile, and say, he's looking at cool, <laughs> cause I'm just a prince. I'm just a prince, I'm just a prince who can't say no. Written by Richard Curtis and voiced by Chris Barrett, the song would recount the saucy, shagging exploits of Prince Andrew, which definitely seemed a hell of a lot funnier before, well, you know, everything. The lyric, my official title is the pilot of the chopper, my unofficial title is the home of the whopper, was excised before transmission. And anyway, we all know he prefers Pizza Express. The programme had also received the dubious honour every controversial TV series of the time got, a damning by Mary Whitehouse, who called it a non-event, a cheap, tatty programme. And even more controversy was to follow. 10th of June, 1984 After a short break to recalibrate, in which Tony Hendra went back to the US and staff writers Rob Grant and Doug Naylor pushed some more celebrity and sports-based material to broaden the appeal of the comedy, the programme really took off. And, as that popularity increased, so did their pushing of the envelope. This came to a head when the team decided to add a little subliminal message joke after seeing the young ones do similar in their then-current series. In it they wrote, Did you know Flash Frames were outlawed because advertising firms used them to make subliminal suggestions, like hypnosis. You know, so people would go out and buy their products. As if that could possibly work. Script-writers are incredibly good impaired, you find them irresistible, you must go out and sleep with one now! The team naturally made it in good fun, however the IBA were less on big breaks of the 1981 Broadcasting Act and wrists were slapped, and so they promised never to do it again. 27th of January, 1985! They did it again. And in a song about how breasts can sell anything, entitled Big Busters, staunch anti-subliminal message crusader, record-breaker's personality and far-right bastard, Norris McWurter was rewarded for his complaints by having his head stuck onto that of a naked, big-breasted woman. Despite the image only being on screen for point twenty-fourth of a second, it was noticed within hours. Weirdly, by McWorter's 15-year-old nephew, who I'm sure was just freeze-framing the sketch about boobs for... science? McWorter sued for libel and the following year, it reached the High Court, who immediately threw out the case. 13th of May, 1986. 1986 has been a great year in both quality and popularity with an American adaptation for NBC and even a number one hit the euro agadoo style spoof single The Chicken Song with lyrics from head writers Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, both of whom had decided to leave the programme at that point to work on, I don't know, some sci fi sitcom or other, was attributed to the Wet Gits, actually Kate Robbins and Michael Fenton Stevens. Keeping the potential controversy high was the single's B side, I've Never Met a Nice South African, a spiky attack a racial divide in the still white supremacist run country.
3: Here is a message from your glorious misleader.
0: Please miss this week's edition of Spitting Image.
4: I'm asking you to make a special effort because it's the last show of the series and I'm terribly afraid it will be a particularly outrageous and funny edition. So remember, miss Spitting Image this Sunday at 10 o'clock and I'll be able to relax. 11th of
0: June, 1987. Despite the programme's success, it was occurring to the remaining writing staff, which now boasted future absolutely men John, later Jack Doherty and Morrie Hunter, alongside Andy Hamilton, Guy Jenkin and David Quantic, that, as good as the satire might be, it wasn't really changing anything in the real world. A fact borne out by the Tory landslide of the 1987 election. And there we have it, the predicted result Conservatives 359 seats, Labour 243 seats,
5: and Alliance 24 seats. The polls have now closed, shortly to be followed
0: by the rest of the hospitals, the schools, and the BBC. Ha 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 ha. That night, after the exit polls captured the hopelessness, many felt at five more years of Thatcher. Speaking Image went to air with one of its angriest, most pointed episodes, with a notable finale featuring self-satisfied middlemen gleefully singing along to Tomorrow Belongs to Me, in a dark parallel to the Hitler Youth scene in 1972's Cabaret. You can control them, Neil. Oh, the oh, From there, in Image remained popular so as a merchandising tool, with a video game, books, toys, albums, and spin-off productions like magnificent CITV programme about the world's first electronic video comic round the bend, Strained up The Whinging Bomb, and even the Mary Whitehouse experience. We felt that like the series had lost its fight as new, more shocking, more controversial comedies appeared. Still, it remained a constant on ITV right until 18th of February 1996, where the final run came to an end. However, It might have been the inevitability of the axe or the sudden appearance of a new batch of interesting celebrities to parody like the Gallagher brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Jarvis Cocker and the ever-growing cult of Tony Blair that led to these last shows feeling like, actually there might have been some life in the old puppet dog yet. And then, after an impressive 137 episodes, 4 45-minute specials and numerous charity show appearances, it was gone. Many imitators followed and failed. The Sunday 10pm slot stopped becoming the home of ITV's alternative comedy offerings and all that remained was the odd charity shop item featuring grotesque rubber caricatures of long-dead politicians that nobody under 30 could possibly appreciate. But we'll always have the jigsaws.
4: Well, that's the end of programmes here on BBC One for tonight and for the foreseeable future. So don't forget to switch off your sets. And don't bother to switch them on again tomorrow. Good night. Well, I think that went very well,
2: don't you, Philip? That was episode 50A of the Archives.
1: Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Ben Baker, Andy Priestner and Martin Holmes.
2: On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler.
1: The scripts for The Cleopatras were written by Philip Mackey.
2: And the producer was Guy Slater.
4: <laughs> the prologue, Medusa of the Gorgons. Now, Maj- are you still there, dear? Are you there? You're all right, are you? Yes, Chunk, have you waited now long? Is, now you're now, in a minute now. Right, now, Medusa and the Gorgons. Woo, s- woo, and thrice, woo! Oh. The time has come, the end is here! Oh, no, it can't be yet, surely. Yes! Oh, not yet, surely. What a pity. I mean, after that poor old soul waiting all this time. Oh, well. <laughs> well, no, it's not right. <laughs> I'm sorry, dear. We'll have to leave it for another week now, you see. You back... Go back to the pole. There's a dear. <laughs> no listen, I wish you could have seen her snakes then, because they were hissing like mad. <laughs> they were. I'm glad I didn't bring her on now. I wouldn't like you all to get hissed. <laughs> oh well, never mind. Perhaps we have we'll see her again. Anyway, till next week. Salute. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs>